0: WDBM, East Lansing.
1: Welcome to the Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boodoo
0: and Daniel Puentes.
1: Hey, did you know that Michigan grows 70% of the supply of tart cherries in the United States? It's not too surprising because Washington has a lot of sweet cherries, but Michigan is known for tart cherries. For example, in 2018, Michigan produced over 200 million pounds of tart cherries. Another cool thing about Michigan is that it's a cherry state. Michigan also has a national cherry festival in Traverse City, which is about three miles north of Michigan State. I had the pleasure of attending it last year and the year before, and it was amazing. It was mind-blowing to me that they made so many things with cherries. They made cherry salsa, cherry jam, cherry teriyaki, cherry mustard, cherry everything. Today, we're talking to a researcher who studies the genetic of tart cherries. We're here to talk to Kathleen Rhodes. Kathleen, can you please share a little bit about yourself and your research?
2: Thanks so much for having me, guys. Yeah, so my name is Kathleen, and I'm a third-year graduate student in the program of plant breeding genetics and biotechnology here at MSU. And I work on trying to learn more about the genetics of tart cherry so that my boss, who's the tart cherry breeder for the state of Michigan, can create new varieties of tart cherry that are better adapted to Michigan climate or have more delicious fruit or are easier to process, or are more resistant to pests and diseases.
0: Thanks for joining us today, Kathleen. I have a general question about the cherries in the state of Michigan. What makes Michigan such a nice area to grow these tar cherries relative to other states that are located along the same latitude?
2: That's a tough question. Part of what makes Michigan really, really well adapted for cherries is the sandy soils on the west and north sides of the state. So in Traverse City and also in southwest Michigan, um, those really sandy soils have good drainage and cherries, as we say in the business, don't like to have wet feet. They don't like to have their roots soaking in water all the time. So that's one reason. We also have good long winters, which is required. Cherries actually have to accumulate a certain amount of chilling time every single winter in order for them to develop their flowers properly in the spring. And at the same time, obviously, you don't want super late freezes later in the spring, which can be a problem sometimes. But specifically along the lakeside, the Great Lakes have an insulating effect on areas like Traverse City and Southwest Michigan that prevents huge temperature fluctuations in short amounts of time because of the water there. And so that's also really, really good for trees. And it's also good for grapes and a lot of other fruits and vegetables that we grow in Michigan.
1: I think it's funny that you mentioned that because I've been always wondering to myself why the cherries grow better by Traverse City. Because whenever I go to the orchards, I remember how windy it was. And I remember thinking, wow, how are the cherries even staying on the trees, let alone surviving and growing in this environment? When that has me wondering, Kathleen, how do you gather the cherries for the harvest? Like, could you just shake a tree and cherries just come off of it?
2: You can, but only when the cherries are ripe. That's actually one way we measure ripeness in cherries is how easy it is to pull the cherry off of its own stem. So when they harvest tart cherries, they have a tree shaker and they have a big conveyor belt with tarps attached. And the tree shaker goes to each individual tree. You roll out the tarps underneath the tree and then you shake all of the cherries off the tree and roll them up onto the conveyor belt. And then you dump them in these big tanks of water.
0: Good to know that the cherries are being caught with the tarps. I can imagine as soon as they hit the ground, they might splatter all over the place. That sounds like it's a lot more efficient than what Chelsea was suggesting earlier in regards to just shaking the tree. But I'm curious more now about the genetic factors that you're working with and trying to influence. Being as it may that there are so many different factors that a person can tinker around with when it comes to a tart cherry's genetics which specific physical trait are you interested in influencing when it comes to your genetic manipulation?
2: Yeah, there are definitely a lot of different factors I could be focusing on. Specifically, what I focus on is uh, fruit texture and fruit firmness. So unlike sweet cherries, which are a close cousin, tart cherries are very, very soft when they're ripe. And if you've had cherry pie, you know how soft tart cherries are. It's not like you're having a crunchy pie the problem with how soft tart cherries are is that when they're taken for processing in order to go through the deep hitter they have to be super cool to make them firm up a little bit because otherwise if they were to go through a a processing line in a deep hitting machine at, at room temperature they would just explode and be a huge mess If we can identify the genes and select for firmer tart cherries, we can actually save a lot of time and trouble with having to super cool these cherries and make processing a much more efficient and and easy process.
1: This is pretty exciting to me. You mentioned that you're focusing on the firmness and texture of the cherries. However, whenever you're checking if they're ripe or not, would this genetic alteration change the ripeness and how long it takes for it
2: to develop? I don't think it would affect how long it takes the cherries to reach maturity, but it would definitely change how we evaluate whether the cherry is ripe, because obviously for tart cherries, one thing we evaluate is how soft it gets on the tree. But there are other things like color and flavor. And like I said earlier, the ability of the cherry to be shaken off of its own stem really easily. So fortunately, we have multiple ways to assess ripeness beyond just fruit texture, but I don't think it would affect maturity time
0: to talk a little bit more on the genetic side of things, what sorts of techniques are you using to alter the genetic information of these cherries, and how do you know whether or not it actually was successful?
2: The problem with cherries, which is a huge obstacle for anybody who's breeding cherries and anybody who's working on cherries is their trees and trees take a long time to grow. From seed, it takes about five years for a a tree to actually start producing cherries. And obviously I don't want my PhD to last 20 years. I'm working on a big, big, big orchard with lots and lots of genetically diverse cherries and getting their genetic sequence data and looking at their gene expression profiles. And knowing already ahead of time how they're all related to each other, so having parents and offspring and cousins and and other species and stuff like that, I can begin to understand the genetics of what makes this really firm cherry different from this really, really soft cherry. So I don't actually get to do any of the breeding, really, because the breeding has been going on since my advisor was hired at MSU in the mid 80s. And I'm working on trees that she grew up from seed like decades ago and working on crosses that were made decades ago.
1: It's fascinating to me that you have an orchard with diverse cherry trees, and it's a wonderful opportunity for you. And I'm really happy you're not going to be spending 20 years to do your Ph.D., You mentioned that your advisors had these trees for a very long time. Are these trees located on Michigan State's campus?
2: My main research orchard is located at the Clarksville Research Center, which is about 20 minutes outside of Grand Rapids and about 50 minutes from campus. And during the summertime, which is my busy time of year, obviously, because that's when the fruit are growing, I go to the orchard about twice a week and I collect growing fruit samples and I check on how things are progressing and how different how different trees are growing and maturing at different rates. I'm also looking at fruit set, which is a measure of how many fruit we get out of X number of flowers because tart cherry is notoriously bad at fruit set. You may have 100 flowers, but in a given tart cherry, you may only get like 15 or 20 fruit out of that. So that's something I'm also looking at. And once the fruit season ends in July, usually, I don't go out to the orchard again until early next spring.
0: I can imagine that the summertime might be a really busy time then when you're going out to collect these different samples from your orchard that you have right outside of Grand Rapids. Once you have these samples, what do you do with them? Do you bring them inside of the laboratory? And what techniques do you use inside of the laboratory?
2: We use a whole variety of techniques for studying cherries. Something I did last summer was I was extracting DNA and RNA from a lot of cherries, so I was getting RNA from different stages of fruit growth so that we can look at what genes are being turned on and off throughout the growth of the cherry. This summer, because of COVID, I'm not doing as much wet lab work, but I am still doing some basic measurements of how the fruit growth progresses, and the most important thing to a breeding program is actually measuring and quantifying the the mature fruit. So in another few weeks when the cherries are ripe, I'm going to be measuring their size, their color, the amount of sugars that they contain in their juice. The RNA extraction is pretty similar to RNA extraction for any other field of science. It's a little bit harder in plants because they have cell walls. When I say measuring the fruit, I literally mean we're using calipers to measure the fruit in all three dimensions. I have a meter for measuring soluble solids, which is sugar content. I have a little mini photography studio light box set up so that I can use computer programs to measure the exact color of the fruit because color will tell us some stuff about ripeness, but also some cherries get that fire engine red and some cherries get a really dark purple. We measure fruit firmness using this little turntable that squeezes each individual cherry and tells you how hard it was to squeeze them. So that's the machine I've been using a lot through the last few summers but a lot of this phenotyping, which is what we call it. So measuring the physical attributes of the fruit isn't necessarily really advanced hard science. It's the same way it's been done for the last few decades of cherry breeding, but it's still really, really important to do it thoroughly and to do it accurately so that when I take my sequence data and my genetics, I can hopefully match it up to these physical attributes and we can start to piece apart which genes are affecting stuff like color and stuff like firmness.
1: I never knew that they measure the firmness of cherries or maybe even other fruit with a turntable. It's pretty cute that you have a studio where you take pictures of the cherries and you look at the color.
0: Now that you've had the time to go out and visit and see what the results of your trees growing these cherries has been over the last year, Could you explain a little bit about how the changing climate is making an impact on cherry production as well as within your own research here in the state of Michigan and how things like having a winter that lasts longer into the spring are affecting the growth of your cherries?
2: Spring 2020 and spring 2019 are kind of both good snapshots of how different springs can really affect cherries. So spring 2019, you remember... It was just like 45 degrees until sometime in May. It was cold and it was miserable. And it was freezing some, but there weren't huge temperature fluctuations. It was mostly just consistently cold and miserable. So the cherries bloomed really, really late. But once they bloomed, things stayed consistently warm. And so even though our season was late last year, everything turned out pretty much fine spring 2020 if you remember we had some big temperature fluctuations where we'd have a few days in the 60s and then we'd have snow again the next day and it would go back up to the 50s and then it would freeze again and what that does is the the warm temperatures tell the trees that they can start to develop their flowers and start to bloom but then the cold snaps will actually kill off a lot of the cherry blossoms So in my orchard, at least this year, we saw a lot of losses in a lot of our earlier blooming varieties because they had already started to bloom and they already had their really delicate little flowers out. And then those last couple of bad spring frosts that came with warm weather in between really just knocked out a lot of cherry blossoms.
1: Well, it makes me pretty sad to think about all the cherries that didn't make it. However, do you have a backup for this situation? Like, are you only focusing on tart cherries or are you looking at other types of cherries that might be able to thrive in a condition that the tart cherries could not?
2: Yeah, I am studying four different species of cherries. So there's tart cherry, which is Prunus cerasus, which is what goes in your pies and what they sell at Cherry Republic. There's the sweet cherry Prunus avium, which is what you buy in big bags from Washington in the grocery store and eat fresh. And then I'm also studying two wild species of cherry, Prunus fruticosa and Prunus canescens, And I'm interested in those because one of them, Prunus fruticosa, is actually an ancestor of tart cherry. And it contributed a lot of really good traits, such as really good cold hardiness really late bloom time and that really good acidity that makes cherry pies so good and sour but it's also it grows in this like little bush not in a nice tree and it can also give you some really bad astringency flavors that taste really gross and it it has a really really late maturity time which which farmers in Michigan don't necessarily want because they want their cherries you know sooner rather than later so Prunus canescens originated in China, and it has some disease resistance traits that breeders have been using, and it also seems to have some cold hardiness traits that we care about. So Prunus fruticosa, since it's a, an ancestor to tart cherry, we can see how many of those traits have been passed down to tart cherry. And with prunus canescens, breeders in the past have actually crossed that with tart cherry to try to breed in some disease resistance traits and some cold hardiness traits and other stuff like that. I can look at the lineage of the offspring trees and the great-grandchildren trees and the great-great-grandchildren trees of the, these prunus canescens by tart cherry crosses and evaluate how those traits are being passed down.
0: I never really realized how many different species of cherries there were. For example, like when I think of a banana, you typically just think of that one banana that everybody eats. I'm curious about why you're so focused and interested in tart cherries in particular, though. What makes them so interesting comparatively to all of these other cherries that exist throughout the world?
2: Tart cherries, they're very interesting because even though they're a crop that we grow in the same way that we grow a lot of other domesticated crops, they're not quite domesticated. And part of this is because they are an allotetraploid, which means they have four sets of chromosomes instead of two sets of chromosomes like humans have and like a lot of other species have. And allo, meaning those two sets of chromosomes, each came from a different parental species, So one of the parental species is sweet cherry, which we all know and love. And the other parental species is prunus fruticosa, which is the the wild Eastern European cherry that is really cold hardy, but grows in kind of like a bush rather than a tree. And at some point, thousands and thousands of years ago, probably in Eastern Europe, a sweet cherry accidentally pollinated a wild cherry. And the progeny of that was the first tart cherry. And so it's got these two different genomes kind of fighting it out. And it's, it's got these two different genomes interacting with each other at the gene expression level and at the, just literally at the level of DNA, because this is like a big disruptive event genetically for, for two different species genomes to suddenly be sharing the same nucleus. And the other thing about tart cherries and other tree species is that we can propagate them clonally. So we can take cuttings from a tree and graft it onto a rootstock or just get roots to, or just induce roots to grow. And that tree will be genetically identical to the tree that you took the cutting off of. So while something like corn has had a lot of domestication pressure because with corn you get a new generation every single year and you select for the more desirable traits every single generation, a lot of the tart cherries that I work with are clones that were originally selected by peasants in Eastern European villages way, way like hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And so they haven't had as much selection going on. So when we try to use them as breeding parents, we still end up with a lot of weird, wild traits that we don't necessarily want because there hasn't been as much selection going on. That was
1: a super cool story about the history of cherries. Something you had mentioned really early in the interview was about how your genetic studies could affect the use of pesticides. Do you use pesticides in the orchard that you have these cherries in? And and does that affect the growth or like the stiffness and texture of the cherries as well?
2: We do use pesticides in our research orchard, just like almost any commercial cherry grower in the state of Michigan is using pesticides. And these don't directly affect the the size or the growth of the cherries. But what they do is we spray herbicides between the trees so that there's less competition from weeds for resources, so that the cherry trees can get the most resources out of the soil, like water and nutrients. We also, we have to spray... A lot for this insect pest called spotted winged Drosophila, which is an invasive species that's affecting a lot of Michigan agriculture right now. And a spotted winged Drosophila is a little fruit fly. And what makes it really nefarious compared to other agricultural pests is it will lay its eggs directly in unripe fruit. It doesn't need rotting fruit, like you usually see fruit flies in your kitchen surrounding like a rotting apple or something like that. It'll lay its eggs directly in in ripe or almost ripe fruit and then they hatch out and their larvae in your cherries and the packing houses won't take them. So we do have to spray for that, just like pretty much every cherry grower in at least Northern Michigan has to spray their cherries for spotted wing drosophila. But one of the things we are working towards in our breeding program is breeding for cherries that mature faster. So spotted wing drosophila doesn't usually peak, at least in the area of our Clarksville orchard, until mid-July. So if we have a cherry that's ripe and ready to go by mid-June, then we don't have to spray for spotted wing drosophila. We don't have to worry about it. We can just harvest it before it even becomes a problem. I
1: know the word pesticide is a scary word to some people. Whenever you're spraying the trees, would that affect your health? And also, could it affect the health of people if they eat the pesticides that are on these cherries?
2: Yeah, I know that's something a lot of people worry about. So I don't actually spray our trees. The farm manager at the Clarksville station sprays the trees because he's a certified pesticide applicator, which is something you have to study and take an exam for and get recertified every few years so that the federal government, the EPA can ensure that you know what you're doing when you're spraying these potentially harmful pesticides. The other part of that is when he does a spray he has to report to all of us who work in the orchard that he's done that spray. And every single pesticide that you spray in the US has what's called a re-entry period and a post-harvest index. And what that means is there was a spray done on Friday that I got an email about and the, the re-entry interval for that was 12 hours. So I cannot step into the orchard for 12 hours after that spray is done or I might be putting my health at risk. But after 12 hours, it's good to go. And then there's the post-harvest interval, which tells you how many days you have to wait after spraying something before it's safe to eat the fruit. So obviously we're not putting on sprays that have a post-harvest interval that will overlap with the, the period of ripe fruit when we want to be eating the fruit and you know, touching the fruit and trying the fruit because that would be dangerous to our health. And so if whether this isn't just for research orchards, this is also for farmers, they are required by the EPA to spray their pesticides in such a way that it can't harm their workers, and that there's no residue left by the time they get to the packing houses, by the time the fruit gets to the packing houses.
0: I think that was a really great explanation that you gave on how pesticides are used within your orchard, But speaking of your orchard, is there a particular reason why you chose to use Grand Rapids as your station location rather than Michigan State's campus directly or somewhere up north, for example?
2: So the Clarksville Research Station, I believe, was established in the 80s as part of MSU's network of ag research stations. And basically, the two reasons we work at Clarksville are there's not room on the main campus for the close to 40 acres of cherry trees we have. And there is the Northwest Research Station up in Traverse City, and we do have cherry trees up there, obviously, because that's the goal of an agricultural research station is to be able to replicate what the same conditions that the growers have. So we do have trees up there. It's just most of our material is down in Clarksville because we can drive there in less than an hour versus having to drive all the way up to Traverse City. While we do have a research station up in Traverse City that has some cherry trees, the bulk of our genetic diversity and all of the trees that I work with are in Clarksville. It's not really efficient for me to be driving from East Lansing up to the Leelanau Peninsula twice a week all summer to be collecting fruit. So we go to Clarksville, which has pretty good soil and works Clarksville has pretty good conditions. It's not exactly the same as, as what cherry growers in Traverse City are experiencing, but it's, it's sort of a, a close enough compromise.
1: I agree with you. It's so much more feasible for you to drive twice a week to Clarksville versus all the way up to the Lionel Peninsula. I think your research experience is very unique because you have to travel to gather your samples. However, I'm curious about yourself. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what motivated you to join this research project?
2: Sure. So I was actually a general biology major in my undergrad, and I didn't get interested in plants until the summer after my sophomore year. I was looking for some paid research experience where I would get to go outside. And I ended up getting hired by the wheat breeder at my university. So I got to spend the summer working on wheat and oats and barley and rye and other small grains like that. And I learned about the whole role of plant breeding, and I found it really interesting. I knew I wanted to apply to grad school in plant breeding. Then I discovered MSU and met my advisor, Dr. Iazzoni, who is wonderful. And cherries seems like a really interesting challenge to me. So I thought I would try something new and jump into cherries.
0: We've talked so much about cherries throughout this episode. Are cherries your favorite fruit? And do you plan on continuing to study them once you're finished with your PhD?
2: cherries are not actually my favorite fruit. My favorite fruit is strawberries. Strawberries are also in the Rosaceae family, just like cherries are. So I I don't get too much flack for that. As for studying cherries after my PhD, there are only two cherry breeders in the entire United States. There's my boss, Dr. Iozoni, who studies tart cherries here in Michigan and breeds new tart cherry cultivars. And then Washington State University in Pullman has a sweet cherry breeder, Dr. McCord. So odds are I will not continue to study cherries just because there's not a lot of labs that are breeding cherries here.
0: That makes complete sense. Well, good luck on your future research endeavors. And thanks again for coming to talk to us today about your important research on cherries.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: The Sci-Files is hosted by Chelsea Voodoo and Daniel Puentes on Impact 89FM. Thank you to our news director, Taylor Halterman, Program Director Amber Konutsky, Station Manager Joe Dandrin, and General Manager Jeremy Whiting.
1: The SciFiles can be found online on SciFiles.org and on your favorite podcast directory. If you're an MSU student and want to be featured on SciFiles, or if you have any questions, you can contact us at SciFiles at Impact89FM.org.
0: Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth is in the science.